0: Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast with me, Jenny Plant, from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow those existing client relationships so your agency business can thrive. Hello and welcome to episode 87. Now today's episode is, for me, really enjoyable because If you have clients with procurement departments and you need to negotiate with them, Mike Lander joins me. He's an ex-procurement director who now helps sales teams negotiate with procurement. So Mike and I talk about where agencies typically go wrong negotiating with procurement, what procurement are looking for when selecting an agency and why they're so interested in your financials, a five-step framework to help you negotiate with procurement more effectively. And he's also going to share some of the, let's say, less scrupulous tactics he's seen less evolved procurement people employ in the past. So hopefully that's a heads up for things that you may experience, but hopefully not. So let's go over to the introduction now. Today's guest, I'm very excited to be chatting to Mike Lander. Mike is a successful entrepreneur, ex-procurement director, and expert negotiator with a proven track record of buying, growing, and selling businesses. Mike has a uniquely valuable perspective on negotiating commercial deals, having worked on both sides of the table as a procurement director and an entrepreneur. He works predominantly with sales teams to help them negotiate more profitable deals, especially when procurement gets involved. He also happens to be the chairman of the successful SEO agency, ReSignal. Mike, a very warm welcome.
1: Jenny, thank you for inviting me.
0: It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Would you mind starting off by just talking about your experience of how you help agencies?
1: Sure. So a long history of kind of professional services and consulting in my past. And what I do now is having had all that experience, I focused on working with agencies. I work with the sales people within agencies, could be a founder, could be a sales team. And I work on helping them improve the negotiated outcomes of deals they negotiate, especially when they're dealing with bigger companies and they deal with tough, well-trained buyers like procurement people.
0: Perfect. And how do you observe that typically agencies approach negotiations with procurement people in bigger deals?
1: So I think understandably, if you look at, let's say it's worth half a million pounds, let's say it's a project rather than a retainer, and let's say it's competitive. So what an agency rightly is doing is focusing on the creative element, how they're going to engage with the client, how they're going to deliver the outcomes or the outputs or both for that client, and that the chemistry is right between them and the client. And let's say the buyer is the CMO for a region. So they've done all that hard work. They've got shortlisted. And let's say they've not really been engaging with procurement as much as perhaps they should, because they're focused on the business stakeholder who's got the budget. Well, of course, in the background, at a half a million dollar or even pound deal, then procurement are going to get involved because it's a material sum of money, and it represents risk to the business. And so if I was the procurement lead, what would have been happening in the background is, there's not just you, Jenny, as an agency, there's clearly Jenny plus two or three other agencies that I'm negotiating with. I've got you as the front runner, and I've got two in reserve in case I can't negotiate a deal with you. So the key thing here is, rightly, agencies spend a lot of effort and money on developing the relationship and selling themselves to the client. Very little time is spent preparing for and switching mindsets for negotiating the deal. And that's the biggest challenge, I think. It's a different mindset. It's a different approach. But it requires significant preparation if you're going to get a balanced deal. And
0: tell me about that mindset. Like what is important about having a mindset that you're just about to step into a negotiation?
1: (laughs) So imagine we're having a coffee, Jenny, because as we said before, I quite like a chat. I've got a few notes, but let's just kind of talk about the mindset and what happens. So I've been selling for, I don't know, 25, 30 years probably in business. And I know when I'm selling is I'm trying to build a relationship, I'm trying to tell stories, I'm trying to show you that I know what I'm talking about, I'm a subject matter expert, and all that's important. But when you're negotiating, if you're negotiating with a trained buyer, a procurement person, they're assuming you've done all that already. So I don't need to rehear all that. And I'm not here to become friendly with you. I'm here to get a deal done. Now, that doesn't mean that passion for your business and inspiration and being forthright isn't important. Of course, it's important, but you can't become emotional. Really important. A very good friend of mine years ago, years and years ago, was a great sales teacher. And he said to me, Mike, the moment that you become emotionally attached to the outcome of a deal is the moment you've lost the deal. And Matthew was absolutely right. Because emotion in the negotiation Even with a trained buyer that's not going to play games, some still play games, but most don't, I would say. The moment you start getting emotional about something, A, it gets in the way of the deal structure. B, it can irritate your counterparty. And C, it will yield value. I will probably claim more value than you will in that deal. There's loads of talk about everyone's a win-win negotiator because it sounds good. It's not the reality. A true win-win deal, if you look at the true definition, it's not just mine. If you look at Harvard's program on negotiation, which is brilliant, look at their definitions. A true win-win deal is when both sides create more value for each other. So what that means is, if it's a half a million dollar deal that we're talking about with your firm, Jenny, and that's got a certain scope attached to it, if I can extend the scope for you and increase the value of that deal, you've won. Yeah, you've won more. At the same time, I've replaced. Three suppliers with one. I've got better outcomes, more defined outputs, more single point of accountability, and overall, probably a better commercial deal structure. So I've won. We've both really won. As opposed to, I've got a fixed budget. You've got a scope. I want a 20% discount. You say, well, I can't do that. We end up at like 15% discount. And then I start chipping away at all sorts of other things. And I get 20 to 25% off the deal. That's not win win. Might be a very friendly discussion, certainly isn't win win.
0: So, this is really good advice. So, thank you for sharing. So, do you think that generally agencies kind of A, are probably a little bit too emotional about it. And do they try too much to apply the same tactics to the CMO as they do to procurement, like essentially wanting to be liked? This is a partnership. We have that lovely attachment to that word, partnership, don't we? Do you find that that's, and I'd love to hear from you, Mike, other experiences where other mistakes are made by agencies, just so people can recognize when they are making a mistake?
1: Yeah, sure. And this isn't a judgment statement in terms of my reply. It applies to anyone selling professional services, in my experience. And I think the emotion becomes problematic, as you say, as a mistake. I think a lot of organizations, agencies, consultancy, accounting firms, legal, when they get to, oh, I've now got to go and talk to procurement, you'll have heard the words, I think we've got a deal from the CMO. I think we'd love to work with you. You've just got to get this past procurement and we'll be good. And those fateful words, they produce a sinking feeling, I think, in most agencies and most other sector organizations that are dealing with big corporates. And I think when you start to go on that journey of, I've got to go meet procurement, A, you should have met them earlier on, not at the end. And B, it's very hard for a founder or commercial director, we're less commercial directors, more founder-led. Organizations to detach themselves emotionally from that deal. So, a really simple piece of advice let's assume your agency, if it's a half million pound deal, then the chances are you're probably at least 50 people as an agency, I'd have said. If you're that sort of scale, then my recommendation is if it's been a founder led opportunity, because it's a big brand, it's a really important trophy client into a new sector, I'd switch out your lead negotiator. So at that point, if it's a founder that's been leading the sales effort, and it looks like there's a deal to be done, bring in someone very commercial, either internally or externally, to help structure the negotiation with procurement and other stakeholders. Don't take that founder out of the loop, but have them as being the person that understands the context of the deal, the things that haven't been written down but are meant so that the negotiator on your side can deal with the negotiator on their side, they can prepare well, they can structure a deal, and you then get the essence of the deal as well as the balance of the deal sorted out, I would say.
0: That's a great piece of advice because you said a word that you emphasised earlier on, which was when agencies are dealing with trained buyers. I mean, in your experience, I probably can guess at the answer you're going to give (laughs) me, but would you say that agencies are trained in negotiation skills?
1: No. So I would say if I looked to agencies that I've worked with across the piece, I don't know how many agencies there are in the UK. I think it's about 10,000 plus. If you took 10,000 agencies, 5% will be trained, maybe less. If you flip the coin and said how many buyers in bigger companies are trained, 95%.
0: Exactly. And that already. So I love that tip. So remove yourself once it's gone past that negotiation stage, get someone more commercial. Who typically would that be in a founder led organization of 50 people?
1: So if you're at 50 people, you've probably got a head of growth or you've probably got a sales director or at least one senior salesperson out of maybe two or three. I'd pick that person.
0: But ideally, if you're not perhaps... I mean, it depends on that person's experience levels, doesn't it, as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what would I say? I'd say bring in a third party.
0: (laughs) Because they do it
1: every day. I mean, why do I get brought into client deals? Because I do it every day for clients. I prepare every day. I've got templates that I use every day. I've got... There's a funny thing about the human mind, I think. It's not funny. I guess it's obvious Until you kind of think it through. If you're a 50 person agency, say, or a 10 person agency, or even a 300 person agency, a half million pound deal is material. You're not doing them every day. You're probably doing in a year two or three at the bigger end, maybe five, maybe seven. So you're only doing it once every two or three months Mm. and it's intense and it lasts for about two or three months and then it's over. And then you get on with delivering the work. Well, that's really counterintuitive because the buyer, they're doing it every day. The marketing procurement lead in a big organization does this every day. So just their mindset, their mindset, their instincts, the way they approach it is trained. And it's trained in a very instinctive way. And I think instincts are born out of behavior. If you behave in a certain way for a certain period of time, it becomes instinctive. You asked before about mindset. So let me just go back to the mindset for a second. If you look at the mindset of a negotiator, Chris Voss is a great example of Chris Voss' book called Never Split the Difference. And he was the ex-lead FBI negotiator for hostages. And clearly a a critical job because it it really does save lives. I think how you apply that to business is a bit different, (laughs) but... The book is very good and his thoughts are very good. And he talks about in the mindset, he's got this very calm, very slowed down late night DJ voice, as he calls it. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to calm the other side down, slow the tempo down, take the heat out of the negotiation, and become a much more Zen leveled person. When you do that, what you'll find is you'll feel your heart rate slow slightly you'll feel your breathing change slightly you'll feel your anxieties kind of fade away and you become much calmer so a trained negotiator will absolutely do that so if you're going to act emotionally your heart rate's gone up your anxiety levels have gone up you've probably got stress at the front feeling stressed at the front of your head you're feeling a bit cornered while well, I'm not in those situations you may well say things that you don't mean to say and the problem with that is, I'll write those things down and use those, not against you, but as a reminder that, well, you just agreed to X, Y, and Z. And I thought we'd really lock that in. Now you've got to unwind that position. And that's going to put you at a disadvantage.
0: Love that. I've actually got a crush on
1: Chris Boss, I
0: have to, be, I have to admit, <laughs> honest to God, I know, I've seen his, what is it, the his little mini course, Yes. And just at that point about the late night DJ voice, it's just so true. When you watch him in action, you just think, oh my gosh. Yeah. So great reference. Thank you for sharing that. So Pleasure. let's talk about procurement people. Like mm. how are they measured? What's going on for them? What are they looking for? Cause you've been on that side of the table going into these situations. And I don't know I've heard this reference several times. I think I've said it myself, but it feels sometimes like agencies are going in like lambs to the slaughter Mm -hmm. because they are so highly trained. But just talk to us about being that side of the
1: fence. Sure. And I think that lambs to the slaughter, it's a good visual image to have, but we're not trying to kill anyone and we're not trying to do anything disruptive to someone particularly. We're not trying to be manipulative. But if I link the kind of how we're measured And the things we look for into one. So, I built something a while ago called the procurement success equation. And a lot of clients and a lot of people online that have seen it have really kind of resonated with it because, in its simple form, and I've tested it out with a whole number of procurement people, yes, there are nuances, but broadly, this is broadly true. So, if you look at how a procurement person looks for success in my old role, there are six dimensions. So, there are six things that I'm pretty much focused on all the time. So first of all, savings or return on investment. So some kind of value, but also some kind of savings. And they are different. And I could explain in more detail what that means. But let's just hold it for the second at savings and ROI. Plus innovation. I want innovation. Creativity. Plus quality. I want a quality supplier. Plus reliability. Are you going to do what you said you'd do? And plus sustainability diversity, equity, inclusion, ESG. Those aren't buzzwords. Those are meaningful words that as a procurement buyer, I absolutely want evidence that you are a sustainable, inclusive supplier. And then here's what I think is the important bit is, if you add all that up, you'd say, well, that's success. Well, then you divide it by risk. So go back to your math days. If you divide something by a big number, it gets smaller. So if the risk is high... My success goes down. If you can help me get the risk to be lower, my success goes up. So, when you're negotiating with a procurement person, you've got to think about risk in terms of the way that you're negotiating the offer and the way that you're explaining to me how you are a low risk solution. Let me give you an example. So, let's say your agency turns over a million pound of fee income. And let's say this is a £300,000 deal. So I'm going to be a third of your turnover. And let's say I pay on 90 days. The first thing on my mind of many about risk is, how are you going to manage the working capital, Jenny? How are you going to fund the fact that I'm paying you on 90 days? Now, there might be a negotiation. It might be 60 rather than 90, but there's still a working capital stretch. Helping me think that through, talking to me about the strength of your balance sheet, how much cash you're holding. Talking me through your management accounts and your cash flow, showing me that you're a well managed business, all that helps. To agencies, it seems counterintuitive. I'm not saying tell me your profitability, tell me the detail of your profitability. So, for example, management accounts, you might say no, but a cash flow statement at a high level, you might go well, that might be okay because it shows what your current cash is and how you manage cash and your working capital cycle. That might work talking to your finance director. You know, if you're a small agency, that might be the owner. That might be your accountant. Looking at your trading history, looking at how you've grown by 30% per annum year on year for 10 years, you're giving me comfort that you can manage finance. And go. all that is really important. How am I measured? Well, I'm measured on a balanced scorecard. If you look at those elements, if I just buy cheap at the expense of quality and reliability, but deliver savings, then I won't get well compensated. I may well get fired. It's an illusion that agencies have that procurement just want to buy cheap. It's not true.
0: I agree. It's not sustainable. What else is on that risk underneath that equation? What else are they looking for in terms of risk as well as working capital?
1: So if you looked at all the elements of risk, so let's just take a few. Reputation, yeah, reputational risk. Which of the clients do you work with? Which sectors do you work in? So certain sectors I would be concerned about. Supply chain. So how does your supply chain work? You might have freelancers. Most agencies do. I'd expect you to have freelancers. Where do those freelancers work? Under what conditions do they work? Legal. So the legal risk, you work with freelancers. Well, have you backed off my contract against them? So have you passed through the terms that I impose on you to your freelancers? Insurances. How are you insured? How do I call on that insurance? Operationally, do you have a single point of failure? So have you got one delivery lead that's the key? Well, if they move company, what happens? Does the whole thing fall apart? So already we've got about five or six.
0: you You've really helped explain this because I used to think procurement was so, you'd think, well, why are they asking us to open up our books? When I was working at Publicist, for example, they wanted to know everything about the business. And actually you think, well, But where do you draw the line? I think, as you say, cash flow statement rather than profit would be more profitable. But for all of these reasons, I can now understand. And it's so funny that you highlighted that legal point about your contract reflecting the same terms as a freelance contract, because that's come up so many times in discussions I've I've had with agencies. Oh,
1: really? Interesting.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And it's a real pickle. So
1: yeah. Because imagine imagine if your freelancers start talking about working with your client in a tweet yeah. or on LinkedIn, and yet the terms of your contract say you're not allowed to do that, or yeah. you're liable.
0: Well, I think Mars came out within the month. I think Tina Fijin posted something about this that Mars is suing their agency, a small agency, just because the agreement in the contract was, if you want to work for a competing company, then you have to ask us for permission. But they found wow. out through the grapevine that this agency had submitted an RFP to this really? competing company. Yeah, I don't know how they found out, don't know the details. Yeah, yeah. They were suing them. So you cannot afford for your clients to be suing you because that Absolutely. can wipe you out.
1: But also, Jenny, on that point, I think it's a really interesting point about non-compete clauses. So if I was helping that agency negotiate that contract and Mars stood firm and said, you cannot work for any competitors, we're mm-hmm. not going to name the competitors. We're going to take a judgment view on who those competitors are. I'd say don't do a deal. They've no right to do that. Mm. And if you are going to accept non-compete clauses, A, limit it to two or three companies, and B, ask for something in exchange. If you're going to limit my ability to grow as a business, then I want an extended contract term. I want a three-year minimum contract. I don't want any cancellation for convenience clauses, only for performance. Mm. And what will happen is they'll say that's outrageous. You can't have that. And we'd say, that you're asking for exclusivity. You don't think that's outrageous.
0: Yep. And
1: you start to balance the discussion.
0: So it's all down to that negotiation skill, isn't it?
1: It is. Yeah. By the way, something else on negotiations, Jenny, which I think is a misconception when people are selling. People think that negotiation is the last 5% of time in the sales cycle. You do it at the very end. You're actually negotiating all the way through because you're saying things to your client that they take as being true and that gets passed on to the person negotiating the statement of work so don't be surprised when the sow a is on their paper not yours and b has all sorts of things in it that you really rather wouldn't have been in the sow because you've been saying things oh all sorts like we'll give away free services for a period of three or four months for x because we want to do more digital pr with you IP, yeah, fine, I'm sure we can share the IP, there's no problem. Yes, 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 you can can use the stuff that we create, that's all okay. Well, that's absolutely not okay. The IP, in big consulting firms, as I remember very well, when we work for a client and we're developing deliverables for them, that IP is owned by us, and it is licensed in perpetuity to the client, free of charge. So they have the right to use it, free of charge forever. They don't own it. Because what happens is, If they own the IP for something that we've developed, you can't ever use something similar ever again. Well, that's a restraint of trade on your business. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but it's a really important point because they could come after you saying, that campaign you just did for company X looks quite similar to the one you did for us. So you're in breach.
0: Again, Mike, I was referring to this situation with another agency. It's all in the wording because I've got an agency who Again, the client, they're working with a big client and another part of the organization wanted to use the same artwork and they asked for the right. artwork and they were asking me whether they should give it. And I said, what's in the contract? Yeah. And they weren't sure what was in the contract because the wow. wording of the contract was so legal speak. So I ended up referring them to a legal, firm, um, hybrid legal to work it out because it wasn't so much that they were... Reluctant to give it over. It was the freelancer that had done it. Exactly. So, again, to your point before, so there's, I think there's a lot here actually that we have to be aware of, first of all. So, what are some of the typical tactics that procurement tend to employ when they are negotiating? So,
1: I think if you look at when we say tactics, people think of games. And I'd advise people don't think about it as a game, think about it as A well prepared mind. So when you meet a procurement person, what they're trying to do is a few things. So, for example, they're trying to lead the process. Why? Because they want to be in control. And it's well proven that whoever is in control of the negotiation process tends to win more of the value if you're in a value claiming scenario, which often happens. They will be focused on savings. Now, savings has a very particular definition. So, let me just give you a very quick example. If this is something that they've bought 10 times before and they have an incumbent agency and it's a retainer and the scope's really clear, but they're looking to switch what I would call maybe a third or fourth generation contract, then a saving is on a true like for like basis, i.e. what I bought last year, if it was £100,000 then and I can get that same thing for £80,000, it's a £20,000 saving because it's a true like-for-like basis. If I'm buying something from you I've never bought before, ever, and I get a discount on your list price, that's called cost avoidance, not a cost saving, because there's no previous reference point. Mm -hmm. And these nuances are important. So something else is a tactic. They'll run a process, probably an RFP, either formal or informal, and therefore it's competitive. It's a tactic. What am I trying to do? I'm not trying to waste my own time by reading 20 RFPs, responses. What I'm trying to do is work with the stakeholders to define what the scope of that work is and what the outcomes are and how we're going to select an agency, so some criteria. And then I'm going to shortlist five, ideally probably, yeah, probably five. Five go out to market. I'm going to get four high-quality responses back. Maybe one's not quite up to the mark. I've now got four or three that I'm going to take through to the next stage. And then I've got one front runner and one or two nears. So is it a tactic? Yeah, I guess it is. It's just the reality of me trying to buy high quality, reliable services, innovative services from the right agency. So that happens. And one really key thing. So really, really important thing about the kind of imbalance that can happen as a tactic. What I just said then was, I've got my preferred, and I've got two others. I have a BATNA, a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If I can't do a deal with you for whatever reason, I do have two others I can go to. That makes me mentally calmer, less anxious, gives me more certainty, and more negotiating leverage. So I have true BATNA. You as an agency, pitching for this work as the preferred, salespeople say, well, I've got no BATNA. I either get the deal or I don't. I said, that's interesting. What's in your pipeline? People that respond, so take 100 agencies, when I say what's in your pipeline, particularly in a tough market like this, might say in confidence, Mike, it's not looking good. We've not got a really strong pipeline. So they have a weak BATNA. Mm -hmm. It's not a fault. It's a reality. But what that does is it puts them under huge pressure. Whereas 20% of the agencies that have a strong pipeline, who are the front runners, their BATNA is, I'll go off and do the other deals. I'll spend more time on the other deals I'm working on rather than this one. I'll cut this one short early and say, thanks, it's not for us. And I'll work on something else that's more profitable, an easier relationship, less risk, so, having a strong Batner as a salesperson is have a strong pipeline.
0: Like it, like it. Because it's also that opportunity cost, isn't it? If I'm it putting is. all my time and energy into this pitch op- opportunity and I haven't qualified it and I've got a weak pipeline, you're very much over a barrel because you become desperate and then that makes you emotional. And then that's that roller coaster effect.
1: And I can see it in your eyes and your behavior. I'll spot it because mm. I do it every day.
0: Tell us about, I know you made a point of saying these aren't tricks, but what have you seen? I mean, you and I personally know Blair Ends that has the yes. podcast, the 20% podcast. And it was called the 20% podcast for a reason. And you yeah. were featured on it, one of the best episodes. I thank in my you. Jenny. Really good. And the 20% being at the end of the negotiation they'd string you along. And then at the end they say, well, just give us an extra 20% and you've got the deal. And that's why you called it 20%. So right. tell me about some of the other, I mean, maybe less evolved marketing procurement teams. You know, what do agencies need to be aware of?
1: Yeah, sure. And you know, like you, I'm a, a massive fan of Blair. I think his work's fantastic. And that podcast is really interesting is that he's looking at, well, how do marketing procurement work and what are they looking for? I'd recommend people listen to that series because it brings on procurement people and they give the alternative perspective about what they are actually looking for. So yeah, it's a great series, definitely. So in terms of like, what other tactics might some of the less evolved marketing procurement people use against agencies, there are still tactics used, which are, I would say these are far less frequent than they used to be 20 years ago, I would say. And I think it applies across all sectors but let's have a quick two or three that might be entertaining for your audience so there's a table thumper which that's absolutely not what we agreed that's absolutely the wrong price the wrong terms and i thought we'd agreed something far more sensible so actually jenny i'm pretty offended so if you want to come back sharpen your pencil we may have a conversation so there's the table thumper
0: The old sharpen the pencil line. The old
1: sharpen the pencil line. Exactly. And again, even though we're having a podcast, and obviously for this, we're on video, but they'll hear it on audio, your audience. I can see in your face, even just when I thump the table, you have a reaction. And it's, you know, for less evolved marketing procurement people, very few of them out there, they might use that to get a reaction from you.
0: I agree. It's just from the agency's perspective, we want you to come on board. We're at the beginning, we're all excited about it, and all of a sudden, there's this breakdown in the relationship because yeah. we've seen you thumping the table and being really, you aggressive. know, aggressive. Aggressive, and it kind of it does. It's quite shocking. So it is shocking,
1: and yeah. it, it's rare. But uh, I thought it had died a longer time ago, but apparently not. I know clients who have said they've come back and said they've been banging the table and walking out the room and throwing their books around. So it's a tactic. There's the Columbo negotiator, also called the last-minute chipper. So anyone that's of a certain age to remember Columbo in his shabby raincoat as a detective. There was always at the end the, there's just one more thing. And it was always said very calmly, there's just one more thing which has been puzzling me. But it's always the most important thing. And at the end of a negotiation, you may well find there's just one more thing that we need to think about. Yeah. If you could just take 10%, 15%, actually maybe 18% off the deal, I think I can get it past the budget holders. We've just had a note from Central saying that all contracts now need to be 18% off. So yeah, if you could just sort that out for me, I think we'll be okay. And it's the last minute chipper. Yeah. So again, don't fall for the last minute chipper. What else? There's the late night DJ voice, and then there's the aggressive you yeah, know, bang the table. So you get both sides of the person, the Jekyll and Hyde characters. There's all sorts. There's the Mr. Spock, which is completely rational, logical, no emotion at all, only focused on price, won't talk about anything else. There's the price anchorer, counter anchorer, whereby you say a price. And what you're doing is, whether you know it or not, you're anchoring something in my mind. So what I'm going to do immediately is I'm going to counter anchor. So Jenny, interesting, you think it's worth 100000 I know the market really well. I'm in the market a lot. I know a lot of agencies like yours that do very similar work. The market price for your kind of service at that scope is actually about £60,000. So if you want to come back to the table and talk to me about something around 60 I'm all ears. So you're counter-anchoring using market data as a way of refuting your initial anchor.
0: I could just imagine you doing this, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I really can. It's just so so professional. And actually, everything that you said has been so useful. Like if you've got a weak pipeline, you haven't slept because you need this deal, you're paying people's wages, you know, the the poor people are just kind of falling. So let's turn it around for the agencies. Can you give us some tips and advice for agencies on negotiating in a more effective way? Sure.
1: So I'd advise any agency, just get some training for a start. It'd be that online training, read some books. There's a brilliant book by William Ury, U-R-Y, called Getting to Yes. And it's probably, I've read, I don't know, probably 100 negotiation books. It's one of the best books. It's very simple to read, takes probably two or three hours. And it talks through some really good principles. So it's called Getting to Yes by William Ury. He's a Harvard professor. So read that. Two other things. Prepare. The most important thing you can do as an agency leader to rebalance the negotiation is think it through in advance. Prepare. And I'll give you a very simple five-step framework now that anyone can apply. So anyone can do it in probably 10 minutes. So step one, understand the context of the deal and the goals. So what are your goals? What are their goals? What are their interests? What are your interests? And what's the deal? Yeah, what's the deal about? The context. Step two, So what's the process we're going to use to negotiate and how long is it going to take? How many steps are there to get from where we are today to a signed contract? Write it down a bit of paper, send it across to your counterparty, see if that's right. They'll write back with lots of comments saying you've got it wrong. You've now got more information. Step three, prepare the deal. What I mean by that is think about the deal variables. Yes, you've got price, but you've got scope. You've got payment terms. You've got contract length. You've got termination rights. You've got IP clauses. Well, there's six. So write the six down in rows. You've got six rows now with these variables in them. And then draw a line and go on the right hand side. What's my ideal outcome for each one? And then on the left hand side, what's my least acceptable outcome? But you've now got a range. So as one variable moves down, the other one's got to move up. So you start to trade. Brilliant. Now you're ready to negotiate. Step four, engage, take control of the process, use your deal preparation sheet on the variables, start negotiating. Most importantly, listen to how they respond. Write down how they respond and what their issues are. Then go away, re-prepare, come back. And the last step is when you've got a deal that works for both parties, then obviously make sure it's in the contract as an SOW with the service level agreements and the KPIs, make sure they're all correct and they align with what's been agreed. Anyone can do that. And I guarantee it will at least double, if not probably 5X, the quality of the negotiation.
0: Mike, that was really useful. Thank you. I can see a little handout coming. Yes. Podcast. <laughs> so we'll put your name on the front of <laughs> Um, no, that's really super advice and very, very thorough. And we will make it easy for the listeners to kind of see that, just give us a bit of time to create it. But that's really, really useful. And I'm sure if you cover all of that, you would be on the front foot of probably 95% of other agencies who perhaps are currently in a little bit blind. I mean, from now, I know that you're working with Blair, you've got lots going on, you're helping sales teams, you're the chairman of an agency, You see the industry. Do you have any thoughts to share about the future of agencies as they're dealing with procurement? Because according to a LinkedIn survey, and I think it was 2020, the CPO title, job title, C-suite title of Chief Procurement Officer was one of the fastest growing titles. So it feels that procurement are becoming more and more important. But what are you seeing?
1: So I think a few things. I think we're seeing the growth of the kind of Chief Commercial Officer role. In big companies. If you search on LinkedIn for chief commercial officer for bigger companies, like over a thousand employees, 10,000 employees, what you'll probably find is they cover procurement, but also sales. Because if you think about it, it's two sides of the same coin, effectively, very common skill sets. So I think that's happening more and more is that they're covering both the buy side and the sell side in senior roles. I think if you look at the WFA, the World Federation of Advertisers. They did a report called Project Spring about two years ago now. And the strapline is moving from cost to value. So I think what I'm hoping we're seeing is more focused by marketing procurement people on the value creation rather than just the cost to serve. And I think the other thing that's happening is the third thing I'd have is balancing the relationship with the substance of the deal. So particularly in the kind of services world, when you're buying services, most procurement people now recognize that having a good relationship with your agency is as important as the terms of the contract that you negotiate. So an agency's need to recognize the same thing, is that building a relationship with all stakeholders, as well as focusing on the substance of the deal, are both important. Don't mistake that for, then I can get emotional. It's not about that. It's about how do you build a professional relationship with procurement as well as the other stakeholders. For example, once you've signed the contract, make sure you've got quarterly business reviews in place. A QBR, as I know, Jenny, I think you focus on this a lot in your programs. A QBR is a great way of keeping everything on track. Make sure procurement are at the table. They negotiated the contract, for goodness sake. So make sure they're there. So I think those are the three things on my mind.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, all very, very good points. It's funny because just a quick side note, I was training someone about three years ago. I've been working with her ever since. And she recently came back to me and she said, Jenny, the one thing you told me was to develop a relationship with procurement, and that has been the biggest payoff for us. Yep. So I've done a whole podcast on it with a procurement team and a pharma company. I always encourage agencies because a lot of agencies, they might have something to do with procurement at the beginning of winning the business, but then they don't see them again. What so a missed
1: opportunity. What massively. a huge missed opportunity. Well,
0: they are because to you. Exactly.
1: I mean, as a buyer, if I negotiate a deal with you, And then I never see you again. And in six months' time, I'm sending an RFP out for some more work in marketing services. But I've forgotten who you are because we did a deal six months ago. Well, you won't be on the list. I mean, just the cost of acquiring new business is huge anyway. Why on earth wouldn't you go to the people that are sending out RFPs or even to shortcut the RFP process and say to me, Mike, do you need to go to RFP? I might say, what do you mean? And as an agency, you might go, we're already on your preferred suppliers list. We've got an MSA in place. We've got schedules and we've got scope of work. We actually provide this service already. So we could negotiate with you to provide that as a service without going to RFP. I breathe a sigh of relief and go under certain circumstances, thank goodness for that. That saved me writing an RFP. I'll build a scope of works so and I'll build out what the objectives are and the criteria. And if I, under certain circumstances, I'd have to go to RFP. I don't always have to, but not the police.
0: Well, exactly. And if you're not keeping that regular cadence or touch point with procurement, mm. the agency services and business evolve, like you say. So if I'm now offering, I don't know, digital strategy services that we weren't yeah. before, then keep the procurement person up to date with that. Similarly, I think the procurement team tend to be very plugged in with what's happening generally with the C-suite. I had an agency a little while ago, there was a change of CEO and the agency wasn't aware of that. And all of a sudden they were presented with an RFP to have to re-pitch for their business, which yep. they'd already forecasted. So having a relationship with procurement, it keeps you more plugged into what's happening at exactly. a commercial level with the company. So thank you for making that point. I think I feel like a broken record when I say it.
1: Um, if you want to see an expert in this, by the way, do you want to find the best agency leader I've ever met at doing this? Go on. Katie Howell. Katie Howell is the best agency leader I've ever met about engaging on a regular basis with procurement
0: really she proactively goes
1: out there and meets procurement people on a regular basis well in advance of a deal two or three years in advance of a deal and then when they've got the deal maintain engagement with them she's brilliant
0: wow so this is from a prospecting perspective
1: prospecting and from once you've got the business
0: Mm, Very interesting. I've made a note and I'm sure her name rings a bell. I'm sure I can see her in my you mind. You'll come so across her.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: I'm sure I will. Mike, this has been superb. Thank you so much. I just Pleasure. want to be respectful of your time. The time has just gone like this. <laughs> so tell me, share with the audience what you're working on now, how people can reach you and ideally who you want to hear from in terms of people you can help.
1: Sure. So what's going on at the moment? So the biggest thing I've got going on, I'm always trying to do something in terms of research and development. I'm building a sales negotiation survey tool, which is not a five questions, simple answer. It's kind of an in-depth six dimension assessment of agency sales negotiation skills. So when that's ready, I'll be launching that. People can fill it in and you get a high quality report off the back of it about how you compare to others in the marketplace and where the gaps are in your negotiation skills. So that's one thing I'm working on. There'll be a new podcast coming out probably summer. So we're now in May 23 when we're recording this. By about June, July, that'll be launched because I'm working with The Drum on their podcast, but I'm also going to be working on my own podcast as well. So that'll be coming out. And then also people can always find out more about what I do on LinkedIn. Best thing is find me on LinkedIn. So Mike Lander on LinkedIn. There's always some content on there that you can look at.
0: And you, you also, I mean, I hope you don't mind, but your website currently has a really good ebook, which, again, like how uh, you've been on this, I you. downloaded it a few days ago and I thought it was fantastic. So thank you. Can you just remind us of your website as well?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's piscari.com, P I S, sugar, C A R I.com. And on there, there's a uh, how to negotiate procurement guide, which is quite an extensive guide as a PDF. So yeah, thank you, Jenny.
0: It's really good. It's really, really good. So we're going to put all of that into the show notes. And when you've launched the podcast in summer and you've got that sales negotiation tool ready, we can also, if you just let me know, I can put it back in the show notes.
1: Perfect. That'd be great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great chat.
0: Honestly, Mike, it's been fantastic. Thank you so, so much. I have really enjoyed it. So thank you for coming. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Mike Lander and I'd recommend you follow him on LinkedIn and also download a copy of his free guide on his website. We will provide all the links in the show notes. And finally, if you're managing client relationships in an agency and you're responsible for account growth and looking to develop your consultancy skills. My next Account Accelerator training program starts on the 11th of July, 2023, and I'm taking bookings now. This program is for you if you want to be more systematic and have a more repeatable approach to account development and growth. So you can find all the details on my website, which is accountmanagementskills.com. I'll see you on the next one.